Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorne, action movie screenwriter. And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster. And together we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. In each episode, we'll talk about one major action movie that was released after Die Hard. Now, some of these movies take place on a bus. On a boat. Or even a roadhouse. Uh, sure. The point is, these are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere. Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre. So if you're a casual fan or an action movie Die Hard. Ooh, very nice. Then Die Hard on a Blank is for you. Yes, you personally. Our first two episodes, which are all about the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard, drop December 21st, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie, wherever you get your podcasts. Phil, do the line. Now we have a podcast. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. Welcome to Romerecast, the podcast about the great French filmmaker Eric Romer, his films, his working methods, and whatever we want to talk about related to Eric Romer. I'm Liam Billingham, and I'm with... Sean Senevratna. Sean Senevratna. Sean, hi, buddy. What's How are up, you? man? How are you doing? I'm good. Um, I'm well. I'm here in Los Angeles. Uh, a little bit about me. I'm a filmmaker and now a podcast producer living in L.A. I used to live in New York where I was friends with Sean, and we worked together at a place called Brick. Sean, tell us a little bit about yourself. So my name is uh, Sean Senevaratna, and I am a filmmaker and educator, and I met Liam at Brick. Our uh, boss at the time, Jill Beal. Shout out to Jill Beal. Shout out to will Jill Beal. Hopefully, listen to this podcast. That'd be very cool. Um, I Jill, mean, listen, this is Jill. She's, Jill, she's the beginning the of podcast. our friendship arc. She, yeah, is the, she, she is the origin of this. She started it. She introduced she was like, the two. You guys would be friends. Yeah. And then um, from the moment she introduced us, we stood in the hallway for an hour and a half, continuing to talk it- about movies and life. Was it that long? It felt feature length to me. Honestly, it like long. it could have been like at my dinner with Andre. We could have our own, like my meeting with Liam. And uh, <laughs> what, no, it's so true. What is interesting about that initial conversation, well, maybe it's not interesting, but it is a fact is that we did not talk about Eric Romare. That which is, is the true. subject of this podcast. Eric Romare only came out later in our, came up later in our friendship. And I'll tell you, for me, one thing that um, absolutely kicked this off is. Well, let's pause for a second. Let's pause for a second and talk mm-hmm. about what we're wearing. Sean, what are you? Sean, what are you? Sean, what are you wearing? Well, um, I was bad with the assignment on this. Uh, I was supposed to be wearing a, the same shirt that Liam has. Uh, I'm not wearing the shirt, but, I, but I do wearing. have it. Um, yeah. But it is an Eric Romare Green Ray shirt, and it's really fucking cool. And we a bought very the nice shirt, shirt on the too. same day. It's from Human Boy Worldwide, which is a great boutique mm-hmm. and film fashion website. I, I hesitate to say that I have at least two things in pre-order right now from oh, them. Yeah, their uh, their Lars von Trier Breaking the Waves hat and their Killing of a Chinese Bookie T-shirt. But right now, you're wearing your am, what shirt is that? This is the girlfriend's shirt. 
The um, girlfriend shirt. Yeah, and it's a, a version of the movie poster with a very cool slogan at the top. It says, everybody has one, wants one, or... Sorry, I'm trying to read it upside down. It says, everyone has one, wants one, or is one. There we go. Great um, shirt. And Who's this, uh, featured on the shirt? And... Uh, the actor on the shirt is the uh, lead actor from the film whose name I can't uh, remember right now. That's okay. Yeah. I'm wearing my Paulina Laplace, Eric Romare, Comedies and Proverbs hat, which I got very recently and which I love. And is my, I live in Southern California. It's my go-to beach hat. I wear it to the beach mm-hmm. with a Hawaiian or, or summer-ish shirt whenever I can. It's also my pool hat. So it occasionally feels yep. that sweet, sweet chlorine when my... Daughter splashes. My oh, face, you're living such a you're living such a different hat happen. life than me. My hat you know, life is different. I also your hat life gets to go to the beach. My hat life uh, could go to the beach, and it sometimes goes to Rockaway. But I think our hat lives are very different experiences. But when I do rock that hat, without fail, people will say something to me. Someone has come up oh, to yeah, me, me and started a conversation. Either it's like, oh, cool hat and this uh, moment of recognition of um, being familiar with Romare, or it's a curiosity. People or it's look a cool at hat. It. Yeah, or it's just a cool hat, or it's just like, what is that? People want to understand what does it well, mean, or what does it translate something to? something in the air with Eric Romare. Mm-hmm. There's, there, it feels as though we're having this moment. You know, I think, at the risk of being overly generalized, when people think of the French New Wave, broadly, they mm-hmm. think of two people. Yep. Jean-Luc Godard and Francois Truffaut. Yes. And Eric Romare is, at least in the larger uh, film world outside of the niche French New Wave obsessives, sort of the, not, certainly not the forgotten one by any stretch, but yeah. like a little more of the conventional one. He was himself a little more conventional, a little mm-hmm. more conservative than yeah. them, and certainly in his filmmaking technique. But I have come to feel like he's omnipresent in our culture. You know, there was an article uh, in GQ last summer called The Romare Guy, which mm-hmm. was about oh, yeah. <laughs> inspired by the men in Eric Romare's films. This trend is all about yeah. looking good while hanging out on vacation. Which is so funny that it's also in GQ because all the men in Romare films, particularly the six moral tales, are all very questionable for the most part, douchebags, but also not totally douchebags. But it's very yeah. interesting that it's like how to be that guy, which is very much on brand with certain personalities that exist. Right. And 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 beyond that, it's like with the hats and the fact that people are buying uh, Rayon Vert ha- t-shirts, maybe beyond us, Paulina Laplace hats, uh, the Romare Guy article. And then one of the things that spurred me to finally text you and say two things spurred me to text you and go like, Sean, we've been talking about this for a while. One was, is I was listening to, I was obsessed with Olivier Asayas' series Irma mm-hmm. Vep on HBO Max. And I heard an interview with him on The Watch. Maybe we'll drop in a couple seconds of that. I haven't decided yet. And the interview basically ends with him saying, everything goes back to Romare. Romare is the guy for me. And if you watch Olivier Asayas' films and if you watch Irma Vep, there's a certain maybe superficial, but there's a, beyond just the French language, but there's a certain style that you see replicated in, in some of his filmmaking. Yeah. Um, certainly when in I think um, of, uh, Irma Vep. When I think of uh, Asayas and um, uh, Romare, it's, I also feel there's this quality of him saying it as an adult. And when you look at his earlier films, there's, uh, it feels like that same energy of like a true foe. And I think that also has to go with why we're coming to Romare at a certain point of time in, in our lives. And so, you know, we think of these titans of, like, the new wave. We think of Truffaut. We think of Godard. Right. And Romare, Romare isn't that first one. I don't think it's because... I think it's because you need to grow into him. 
And I don't think I agree with that. Seeing it at 19 is going to be imagine if like you're in a class and you're talking about the French New Wave and My Night at Mods is the first movie that you're introduced to at the age of 19. You would have a very sort of different idea and interest in that realm of cinema than when you're first introduced to Godard or Truffaut. Now, having that initial spark then allows us to sort of mature into Romare, where at first, I don't know if like when I first saw La Collection News, I was like, this is cool, but I kind of just appreciated it. And now I'm at this point where like, I've completely just fallen in love with him as a filmmaker, right. and I've become obsessed with studying him. And so I'm just trying to read every interview, um, read every article, watch every movie, buying all the UK uh, Region 2 DVDs just to try to understand how, do how does play Romero those? think. Do those play on your Blu-ray? Do you have a regionless Blu-ray player? Yeah, I have uh, two Blu-ray players. Oh, <laughs> that's the way to do it. <laughs> that's some, you know, it's, funny, real film it's funny you bring stuff. that up. So my interest in him, though, of course, as a filmmaker I'm interested, is... I have this very, very funny story that I'll tell you very, very briefly about my relationship to Eric Romare, which is in the grand old of year, I think of 1999 or 2000, I went to a blockbuster video with my sisters at midnight so that they could buy a copy of Titanic when it was released on home video. They, one of them was in college, or they were maybe both in college. Yeah, they were both in college at that point. And they both wanted to buy a copy. Uh, was and the, for some reason, was the home video release released at the same time deal. that it was available for rental, or this was already no. after? It was all same I, day I and day. I think I think it was. I think at this point it was all same day and day. Okay. I think that's how they did it. They were definitely buying a VHS tape, and the, yeah. if you recall, in those days, like buying a VHS tape of a movie before it was out of the rental market was expensive. But I think they yeah. paid like a normal. Well, they played like thirty dollars for a VHS tape, but for some reason, I don't know why. Maybe it was Entertainment Weekly, but. The other thing that was getting released on home video for the first time in like years that day was Claire's knee. And I was like, And that was part of the news of the day. It was like the Entertainment Weekly, yeah, whatever was the thing. So I remember saying to my sisters, when we go to Blockbuster and you're waiting in line to buy the Titanic, you should come up and be like, hi. I'd like a copy of Claire's Knee, please, because it would just be such a weird thing to say at a blockbuster. Like, I think that'd be really funny. Now, I knew nothing about Eric Romare at the time. I, I, I was just like, oh, this is some weird French thing. But, like, he's perpetrated. Like, it's like I read the description. It was yeah. like, you know, they all, it talked about the superficial things that are true about Romare, which is it's mm-hmm. about relationships. It's mm-hmm. about dialogue. It's, yeah. lang- let's say, languidly paced, which... I disagree with ways, all these lazy things people say. About I mean, Romare. I think it it is superficially true, and that's fine. But like, it was really so. In a way, he was like sort of the first, like let's say, unconventional. You know, seventeen, eighteen years old. Yeah. Like, yeah, I was starting to read about things, but I certainly hadn't seen a lot of French film. And then a few years later, many years later, not a few. I, I'd seen a few films, but I spent my wedding day while my wife was getting ready for our wedding watching Romare films with wow. my father-in-law. Yeah. And that that's very personal memory of it and a significant memory. And since then, you know, I've watched a few. I, start, I don't think I've seen as many Romare films as you, but they've like imprinted on my consciousness. Like he among, despite having seen, you know, more than a handful, but certainly I'm not a completist on him. Uh, he's always kind of been there. And, uh, you know, the, Previously, the podcast that's on the feed that you're listening to this on was called Oeuvre, Best, Bust, mm-hmm. Oeuvre Busters, and that was an exhaustive deep, exhaustive deep dive into people like Cassavetes, Philip Seymour Hoffman. And this is similar, though, and I think now might be a good time to lay out the sort of the, the goals here. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, this is like a low-key, fun, easy exploration of Romare that goes into detail. But, you know, as of now, it's not a weekly podcast. It is not a, you know, we're not going to be at that kind of high-key consistency. Maybe, I think we're aiming for once a month. Though, part of the reason we kicked this off, and now I'm remembering the second reason I was like, let's finally do this, is that Metrograph in New York City does their Summers of Romare series. Mm-hmm. And their Summers of Romare series cover in the month of August as summer's dwindling and there's that melancholic feeling in the air. They very wisely show Eric Romare films. Sean, will you tell us what films are being covered by Metrograph in this, this the August of 2022? Yes, so at Metrograph... Um... You need to get a book to do it, Sean. Come on, Sean. <laughs> I just want to comb it for any other interesting facts and blurbs that might be uh, in this beautiful, beautiful uh, journal that's always available at Metrograph. Oh, it's actually, like a little booklet? It's a, it's a little oh. booklet, and I was actually just talking to my wife about how, like, these are super important, and we should be saving these, you know? And, like, I uh, totally and agree, I hope 100%. I been, you know, I hope I find some more around my apartment, but... Um, so part of this year's Summer of Romare series is The Aviator's Wife, which is the movie that uh, we'll be discussing today. That's from 1981. Um, then uh, playing this week, opening this weekend, is Four Adventures of Renette and Mirabel. Um, this is from 1987. I'm really excited for this one. This one had been um, pretty, uh, pretty hard to find and still not the most accessible one. So it's very cool that Metrograph Pictures, which is their distribution arm, um, is doing the release for this. And then uh, finally is my favorite Romare film, Boyfriends and Girlfriends, um, also from 1987. Um, so all of these are playing in theaters uh, at the and Metrograph And on the Metrograph app. And on, the on Metrograph the Met- app. So no matter where you are, you could um, download the app and watch the films over there until which September is, 29th, I believe. Which is what I did. And so part of the reason that we finally decided to do this is we were thinking of a way in and, and you know, we had a little bit of a disagreement, which is fine. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking we would do it chronologically. We'd start at the beginning and mm-hmm. move to the end. And I think Sean, and I, I will say now wisely, was like, let's not start at the beginning. Let's start, let's say, in the middle. Let's, not, let's, let's start in the middle so we can go backwards. Kind of like some effective storytelling where yeah. you start in the middle of the story and you want to go back to the beginning to understand yeah. I just don't, where we're coming I, from. I don't think, you know, I know we always want to think of history in terms of chronology, but history's importance is created by a dialogue between two different eras. And so Can I we think write that start... down. That's a pretty good quote. We should write that down. That's <laughs> to... going on the, uh, the epitaph. <laughs> to start at the beginning isn't always the best way to truly understand um, Romare at his best and what he's all about. You know, those early works, we get to see him becoming who he is. But to be honest, you don't actually see who they are at the very beginning. You see it at a certain point. And I think the point that we're going to be starting with um, is a really interesting point in his career. Um, and we decided to start with Aviator's Wife because it's it's not always easy to find these films. Mm-hmm. I certainly have never seen Aviator's Wife on a streaming service before. Not that I've hunted it down, per se, but I haven't always been like you know able to find it. So we wanted yeah. we want to aim to make this podcast. You know, Romare, in some ways, is... An, an inaccessible filmmaker, much more, I would say, by the way, in terms of distribution than his movies. I think yeah. his movies are actually it's, quite accessible. It's insane, but, yeah. But they're hard to get. Yeah. They're hard to get unless you want to buy a Blu-ray player, uh, <laughs> a regionless Blu-ray player, and spend $150 on a UK box set, which yeah. I, I've considered doing this week when I, when I was having trouble with the stream. But 
we want to make this, we want to cover these movies in a way that's accessible to the audience, mm-hmm. not yeah. in a way that's chronological. And you might not be able to find his first feature, The Sign of Leo, right. currently playing on movie, movie.com. Uh, that's not always going to be there. You know, movies come and they go and they disappear. And so this, think of this as an exploration of Romare um, and the larger... The larger French cinema thing. Yeah. So we'll be probably talking about other things. Oh, my goodness. This is like the longest. I also, I want to make. Intro. Uh, <laughs> it is oh, a long Sean, intro. Oh, Sean, come on. <laughs> I'm kidding. Let's, uh, let's consider this the portion of uh, figuring out what the show is sort of going to really, really be um, with each other. And, I love it. Uh, yeah. And it's live for you, And it's audience. live for you, the audience. So this is going to be but, a longer episode, but it's fine. Yeah. Why I think I'm. Um, what's we're really apologizing? Do you like to already apologize for your podcast? You're like, sorry, it's so long. Sorry, guys. No, I'm sorry. never. I'm never going to say I'm sorry on this podcast, never even to you. Never apologize. <laughs> okay. I just think, like you know, I'll apologize, but I think in the context of entertainment, it's probably going to be funnier to move it along and not apologize. Uh, yeah, exactly. And we'll end the final episode yeah. with all apologies. I'm so sorry. That and Nirvana. That, and that time when I got <laughs> Guys, a little so heated sorry. when you said that part was no, like unnecessary. I love, you. I love you. Let's kiss. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, but, okay, uh, let's jump right in. Oh, uh, oh I'm so, sorry. Like, yeah. So what I wanted to say it, was Sean. what's really important and I think it is interesting is on, especially with podcasts, it's easy to talk about narrative. People talk about narrative. People talk about plot. Um, but I really haven't... Um, had a deep filmic exploration into like the direction. And so that's the lens in which I always watch movies. And that's the lens in which I'm most fascinated by Romare. So I'm really sort of um, looking at him through this sort of production lens and this direction lens and the lessons that we can learn from Eric Romare that could better us as artists and filmmakers. I was trying to say something funny. I couldn't think of anything funny to say. Uh, no, I think that's great. I think that's exciting. You know, I, I, I try to weave a lot of... I'm going to try to just respond to that and, you know, and, and be spontaneous. And I have some thoughts on the movie. And I think yeah. that what's, what's interesting about the way we complement each other is that I... Though I, you know, we, we have similar educations in these things and we both come at it from a filmmaking perspective. I think I tend to respond to the themes and the mm-hmm. ideas and I back into the technique. Mm-hmm. And so it's not that you're not doing that too, but I right. think you're kind of technique first from a conversational standpoint. Whereas I think I'm a little mm-hmm. more like, Ooh, like I sent you a screenshot of what I think is the key frame of the film last night. Yeah. And a lot of my thinking comes yeah. from that mm-hmm. very, very quickly. Let's, let's move in. So we're going to yeah. talk about the aviator's wife. Right. And I think we've kind of covered what are considered the superficial qualities of Eric Romare, or what makes a film... Were we saying Romare-esque or Romarian? I think Romare-esque is closer. Oh, I think Romarian sounds more beautiful. You heard it here first. Romarian is... But then I think of uh, George Romero... That's, That's the one also thing, cool. Like, I mean, they should yeah, be I mean, they should be in conversation nothing, with each other. There's nothing wrong with yeah, George Romero. That's both for amazing sure. Filmmakers. Um, so the superficial qualities of being Romarian are lots of dialogue. Uh. Uh, long shots, languid mm-hmm. pace. Mm-hmm. Uh, people with fake problems, to some extent, like, I'm on vacations, this is so hard. <sighs> but I think that those are the superficial qualities. I also think that, like, there's some, there's people who are like, oh, these are just chill vibe movies. And they are. They're on superficial level, they're very chill vibes. They're fun to look at. You know, he knows how to photograph things. But I think what is hidden there, and you can speak to this, is that there's there's a maximum amount of control in the filmmaking 
but that is hidden by like a real spontaneity and and uh, presence, present tense kind of filmmaking in the present tense filmmaking in the filmmaking. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, absolutely makes sense. And it is interesting to talk about these superficial qualities because the thing that I feel from Romare is like the most suspenseful kinds of narratives. I think he's like Hitch- Hitchcock level master of suspense and his plotting is so like in a way like mathematical and but also like dominoes just falling one after another and there's constantly moving and it's always building and that dialogue is always action like his movies to me are un- uh, ultimately action movies because there's always an action the same that's thing actually today. happening i was thinking that they're action movies mm-hmm. literally every yeah. movie is an action movie every movie is an action movie are better action movies than other action movies. Yeah. And this like Aviator's Wife, which is the film we're talking about, is a it's, it's an also action a de- movie. It's also a detective story. It's also a detective story. And so um you why know, don't I, you tell I, us Yeah. Go oh, so oh and then I think us, about these these people God and like it, you, know, you were talking about, you know, like what the cause the we have to respond to the chill vibes sort of um not even misinformation, but like misconception. It's like there's always the veneer of like a peaceful environment, but like there's so much repressed languid desire um, that's bubbling underneath everything always that like it's always just like a beautiful environment to like stormy passions that get reasoned through, which is the thing that makes him very fascinating is his character's very rarely give into their senses. And it's always about reasoning and talking brain. and what the yeah. brain can convince yourself is the truth, which is the another huge part of this movie as well. Yeah, and I think that one, th- well, let's, that's a great segue into what the movie, the movie is, which is about many, many different things. So the film we're talking about is The Aviator's Wife. Now, what I'm going to read to you and then, or actually, Sean, why don't you read it? which is the description that the Metrograph website gives for the film. And then I'm going to try to like do a very, very quick summary of the film, just a top line summary of the film that I forgot to write. So please correct me if I make (laughs) this. (laughs) Well, since I have my Metrograph journal, I'm going to read from the journal directly. I mean, this is, I'm not a religious person. I feel like cinema is my religion and, um, is this, that what you say to the? Is that what you said to the girls is this before my you were Bible? married? You're like, cinema's my religion, baby. Oh my god! Wait, do you want to know what my name on OK Cupid was? I mean, no, but go ahead. Before Sean Rise. So it was, well, it was a play on that's before the end Sunrise. of the podcast, everybody. I just, I just, I just want to say, like, if I had to flash back to 2010, um, it's very kind of on brand that I'm here um, talking about. Eric Romare on a podcast. For some reason, that yeah. makes sense that it started with Before Sean Rise. So, yeah. The Aviator's Wife. is. Wait, hang on real yeah. quick. Is that okay? Cupid profile still available? Is it still up? Did you take it down? Oh, it's... Actually, pro- don't, it's- don't, 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 don't answer that because if the answer isn't the right one, it's not good. Christine will be like, what? Wait, why is that still up? <laughs> well, now this is a All new, right, new fun detective story. Aviator's um. Wife. Ooh, it is. <laughs> so, The Aviator's Wife. The inaugural film of Romare's comedies and proverbs cycle. The Aviator's Wife is a fleecy farce of romantic overanalysis that finds the director exploring the possibilities of handheld camera work and following a narrative expression of the opening epigraph. It is impossible to think of nothing. A young man sees his girlfriend's ex leaving her apartment one early morning, and his imagination is off to the races, as stars Philippe Marlowe and Marie Riviere. 
introduce a younger, less perfectly articulate type of Romare character than those of the moral tales. So, the aviator's wife. Uh, Sean, tell me about how you saw this movie. So, um, I got to see this movie at the Metrograph Theater in New York City. Dime Square. In Dime Square. I don't get it. Uh, I don't get it. Below Anyways, Chinatown. Um, yeah. Uh, the greatest movie theater in New York City. Um, that is a bold my, assertion. My favorite uh, movie theater in New York City. I've never been um, there. I never made it before I, we moved. Oh, really? Oh, man. Yeah. Well, when you come to visit New York, then we're going to have to go. We'll go. We'll go. We'll go. Um, Metrograph. Get yeah, out and I got to see tickets. it. Uh, it was a packed audience. I got to see Amazing. it with my there were wife. The, a lot of people were there? It was totally packed. Yeah. Oh, that rules. Um, God and, bless um, New everyone, losers yeah. <laughs> who go to see movies in the American Everyone movie. really responded to the film in the, in the way that I think it's meant to be responded to. It's a romantic comedy. It's funny. Um, it is a people, romantic people comedy. People were laughing, and it was, it was, it was really great. Um, it was... Um, I watched it with my wife, and um, which was really cool too, because this is her second Romare film. We had watched Law Collection News together many years ago, and um, I had fallen in love with Romare since, um, in a way that I wasn't when we had first seen it. So, like for us to watch The Aviator's Wife together, and for her to be introduced to Romare now, and like her loving it too, was like made this experience like really, really cool. And it's a it's a real slow burn. To, you've said this before, but it's a slow burn to fall in love with Romare. You kind of have it to is. age into him. You know, I was mm-hmm. thinking recently about um, w- one of the only filmmakers. Uh, I don't watch films as, obsessive, as obsessively as I used to, but one filmmaker whose work I've explored in my teens, twenties and 30s multiple times not every film is akira kurosawa and -hmm. i feel like that's been such a rewarding thing to come back to and be a different person every decade but i do think that like romare's romare's different in your 20s than he is in your late 30s and only now do i feel like i'm blossoming into understanding and it could be because it's an older filmmaker reflecting on youth a lot of the time well what's interesting about that is like, I almost feel like he's like an older filmmaker that's observational and has just the most keen human observations on, on youth. And that's, what's so cool when I've shown this movie to, um, or shown the green ray to younger folks. Um, the green ray seems to be the one that people really, really connect to. And like, I've seen 19, 20 year olds fall in love with, with Romare. So I think discovering the green way, green ray, starting with something like that, um, can allow this like really awesome gateway. I totally agree. Yeah. And I, I think that one of the things that's really interesting about Romare is that this, he's often viewed superficially as being very French, very mm-hmm. conversational, very chatty. Yeah. Uh, very languid, very slow. And I don't, I think you agree. I don't agree with any of those assertions. I actually yep. think that one of the things that blows my mind the most about this movie is that it's a bit of an action movie. I, I It's also agree. an existentialist detective drama. Yeah. In the most like, but not in like, ways. but not in like a, you know, an art house. Like there are so many art house movies that have just probably described themselves as like an existentialist detective drama. And it's not quite that, but it ends up being this sort of like a uh, very casual detective drama that is about right. these sort of like larger issues or like, just like, you know, how human beings relate to each other of like the human condition. But um, if you haven't seen the film before and you're listening to this, it's not like under the silver lake or something like that. You know, when we talk about like, right. existential, uh, just thinking of like the, that sort of phrasing, you, you know, know, but it's, it's like, absolutely is close to, for me a little bit is police adjective, the Romanian drama from uh, I believe 2008 
which is very, very good. And I mean, that's that's a deep pull. But yeah, this mm-hmm. is a thoughtful, reflective movie, mm-hmm. much more much more driven by like, and it has existentialist leanings. Yeah. Romare has said on more than one occasion, like the goal of my movie is to, I'm not trying to make this like, post-war literary. I'm not I'm not yeah. following the post-war literary tradition here. I'm making an existentialist film. He references in the autobiography or not the autobiography, the biography I'm reading uh piecemeal as we mm-hmm. go through these films. The he references Sartre and the Sart- Sartrean yeah. um, experience of life, which is a whole other thing, but very existentialist. Um let's jump into the story. So I'm going to talk about a little bit of the movie, then I'm going to then we're just going to dive into this. Yep, so, cool. first of all, the movie begins with a proverb, which is, the name of the movie is The Aviator's Wife, or, Sean? One cannot think of nothing. It's hard. That's, yeah. It hits hard, that one. It, it's like, it's deep. It hits me, that, that, that line hits me like a ton of bricks. So, the movie opens with Francois working at the post office. Sean, tell me a little bit about the scene where Francois is working at the post office because it does not feel like the Romare we've come to know. Oh, this, uh, so when this movie opens up, it really feels like you are watching a documentary. And I think that's, you know, I would describe this movie as like a uh, neo-realist romantic comedy where um, it really feels, <laughs> let's, let's coin that here. Verite romantic comedy. Verite romantic comedy. Yeah, it has, it has a verite quality in the Yeah, opening. and um, it, it opens up with essentially documentary images of this post office and it's established has to a be real. Rhythm. has it's to be real people real. working in the post office. Oh, like totally. He just inserted yeah. Philip Merlon, the actor, yep. into the scene and was like, go be, go work in the post office. Yeah, exactly. Just go work in the post office. And the first time you see who's going to be our protagonist, uh, Francois, fl- played by the actor Philippe Marlode, um, is just one of the many postal workers. And those are the, those are the little things that Romare does to establish this scene and really establish environment, which are all relevant to the story that we're, that's about to unfold. Totally. And, and he feels like one of many, which I one think of is many. interesting to, there's nothing like exceptional about him. Yeah. In and imagine, imagine the Hollywood version of this, right? Like you'd have the key light on the actor. Like they would be, there'd be the push in, like this right. is our main character and Romero well, doesn't and I do also, gimmicks. I, yeah, I think that's true. And I also think that like, there's something, there's a, he wrote, according to the biography, he wrote an autobiographical version of this uh, story a long mm. time ago. So it feels like it's autobiographical. And I also do feel like it, it's a movie about youth. It's a, it's a, it's a movie Mm-hmm. about your like when you're you know having a job when you're young it's a movie about staying up late and working and studying during the day because yeah. Francois is a common law student um we hear something in this first scene let me attempt to <clears throat> how's my whistling your whistling's amazing i'm impressed that's, by anyone whistling yeah that's kind of strong really right so the is a co-worker of Francois, who he works with, who's whistling throughout the scene. Now, do you remember, how do we see this person in the first frame? So, uh, uh, did you say it was the co-worker that was whistling? It's his, it's his co-worker. No, it's him. Right? He's whistling He's whistling. The co-worker. That's right. Which makes it this even more This is what happens, by the way, like, when you watch the movie, uh, as I did, which we didn't talk about, in two different settings. Because uh, yeah, yeah. you have the Metrograph at home app, and you can't stay awake past 9 o'clock, so you yeah. fall asleep watching the movie. So that... <laughs> And then the but, next night you have Decemberist tickets because you're 40 and you have to go to that. So you have to finish the film the next night. When, uh, when that's really great. Um, and I'm, I'm, yeah, I like my life. And also, um, 
when I had seen it in theaters too, I wasn't clear because this is a, it wasn't until revisiting it, watching it again on my Blu-ray that um, I realized that it was uh, Francois that was um, whistling. And that's because it just, it's a thing that's there at the beginning and our brains aren't even paying attention to it. Which is what makes the tradition that Romare comes from, which is this very intellectual, well-educated kind of... No, he didn't come from wealth or money. He's pretty regular parents. I believe his father worked Mm -hmm. in politics. Um, But, like, very well-educated and, like, definitely knows his drama, like, knows his Chekhov, knows, like, that something you introduce in the first act should come back in the the later thing. One of the great mm-hmm. things about filmmaking, more than novels, I think, and to some extent music, music totally does this, I should say, not to some extent, music absolutely does this, is that the repetition of an image or a phrase or a, a key idea is like a very, very powerful way. Yeah, well, to, it, uh, it to, also kind of ties... To, to affect us emotionally. Yeah, and it's almost like, well, um, it's also important to note that um, he's uh, someone that identified as a Catholic, you know, he's a religious yes. person. And I feel like in these patterns, in these coincidences, these are the sort of like little miracles that kind of happen in our life. And I think there is something sort wow. of like, there's a well spiritual said. quality to these sort of repetitions throughout the film. Spirit, not religious, which I right. think is Spiritual. really an yes, important yes, yes. distinction. Yeah, he, I, he is not a that. religious filmmaker. And I wouldn't even necessarily call him a spiritual filmmaker, you know, but he's not I like a Malik. A, a joie de vivre. A spirit of yeah. life to his yes. film. You know, yeah. and I know that's not a direct translation. Um, Francois leaves work. He heads to Marie's house. Marie is his girlfriend played... Oh, I'm so sorry, Anne. His girlfriend is Anne, played by Marie Riviere, who would later become a huge part mm-hmm. of Romare's sort of cadre yeah, of one, actors. One of his, his, chamber one of his key collaborators out of many key collaborators. And didn't she help him break the story? Break, it's like a writer's room. Welcome to the Romare writer's room. But she did give him an idea for the story, right? <laughs> yeah, so with the aviator's wife, um, around, uh, they had worked on uh, Percival, um, which was part of his historical series in the 70s. And um, they were working on, um, you know, just talking to each other as friends. And she was going through a breakup, a breakup with an actor that left her. So she was feeling very much like uh, the character of Anne and the aviator. And it was this, this paired with a story of Romare being left in his youth that kind of forms the bones of what the aviator's wife would be. So it's interesting that you bring up that she'd had this experience because a scene fall uh, there after they, he, uh, after Francois comes and sees her, she goes to work. She's in a bad mood. This, this, this boyfriend, the aviator has broken up with her. He says he's getting back to his wife and, and Francois sees her, leaving her apartment with him. They haven't, Marie and the aviator have not like, you know, made love or anything like that. They've just, they they have breakfast and then they leave, but Francois' brain spins in a bunch of directions. But now we follow Marie and she goes Mm -hmm. to work. She's in a bad mood. She's having a hard day. She's at work. She works in some kind of sort of clerical. Yeah, it seems like she's like a secretary or executive assistant or... Exactly. Yeah. And so she goes, by the way, seeing people do actual like analog work and oh my God. Well, also like, just like, it's a movie that understands and respects like, like, or is honest about work and how it's a part of someone's life. And like, she has a completely different life. She has a, another friend over there that, you know, like her work colleague, right? We see these aspects of someone's life that never get fully, uh, get, uh, um, a hundred percent into. And also, 
they go to lunch together and they mm-hmm. go to lunch at like a busy French cafe where like there's a lot of people around and, and Romare shoots this a lot of side shots of this and twos and like we can feel sort of the compressed nature of it. Like you yeah. get in, you get out, you have a 30 minute lunch. I know that yep. there's like the traditional image of the French is that they have these two hour lunches, <laughs> but this doesn't feel that way at all. Oh, yeah. It in fact feels very agitated and very fast. They order immediately. Well, and she I- also is like, she's trying to get the waiter's attention. So you have a great yeah, little like, behavior yeah. of like. Of that, on, and then she go, also does go. something quite rude to her friend. She says, "My sandwich can come first; hers can wait." And then her friend says something to the effect of, "That's not so nice." So already we're getting this yeah. little character beat of like Anne as a person, and she is a little bit, you know, lost in her own. One cannot think of nothing, right? Right, one hundred percent. And and the one thing that I think is really interesting is like to make a modern comparison. You might laugh at me when I say this, but you know what I thought a little bit about sitcoms. like the cat sitcoms. Seinfeld. I thought yeah. about Elaine Bennis in Seinfeld. I was yeah. like, this is like a proto Elaine Bennis. Like, not as funny, not as ridiculous, but like Julia Louis Dreyfus even has this sort of like constantly on edge, irritated right. by men in her yeah. life. Kind of like, I don't I'm have grace. I don't want bozos. grace. I'll never have grace. Right. It feels like that a little bit. Yeah. And, and like, Marie, I'm Anne, I should say, not Marie. Anne grates on my nerves. I'm like, you're kind of annoying. Like, ugh, chill out. But she's and so, what's so beautiful thing. about that though is, um, you know, I, I tend to not be very judgmental of characters. I see them as like, this is a document of a real person that exists and let me just look at it observationally. And so, Sure, but you can be annoyed by them. You can still find them sure. annoying. Like for I'm sure, not sitting here sure. being like, I hate her and I wish she were dead. I just, but like, yeah, like, there are I'm, people that watch movies that way and it's a very sort of like, almost like, whoa, like. Well, well like, except that, like, you know, she's not a terrible, but she's those, just someone yeah. that's going through it and has her, you know, is at a specific point in her life that might and not be And those people have best. morality, the yeah. issues with morality, yeah. clearly. Like, a movie character isn't real. But yeah. I do think it's a totally normal reaction. And something I really like is to be irritated by a character. This is such a yeah. digression, but I watched Michael Bay's Ambulance recently. Is that Jake a new Gyllenhaal. movie? Is that an old movie? Yeah, it's a new one. Okay. But Jake Gyllenhaal gives the great... Oh, listen to you. I'm not familiar with that Michael Bay film. <laughs> Jake Gyllenhaal gives one of the great time Just... irritating performances. He's unfucking believable in the movie. And part of it is because he's like, I'm going to be as irritating as I want to be in this role, and I don't care. And it kicks ass. So, speaking of irritating. Someone being so authentically themselves on screen. And that's what Which is, Marie is able to give us. And Andy. Francois. And you know, one of the differences between Romare's prov- comedies and proverbs and his moral tales mm-hmm. is that he tailored the characters to the actors. As yes. opposed to making the actors play characters. Making the actors play characters. Um, Francois walks into the cafe. He wants... Marie's Anne's. Why do I keep doing that? He wants Anne's attention. She decides to leave, and what follows is a confrontation confrontation on the street. So cool between Marie and Francois. Again, it's action cinema. I mean, even tell me about it. Yes, give me give me the like. Give me the like. What did you notice about the shooting? Like, how is it done? Like, why does it work so well? So. Prior to the scene, everything's um, been fairly um, fairly locked off, pretty uh, composed, but not like overly composed, not fussy, but um, we're just observing these characters, but these characters are fairly still. In this scene, we have so much action, so much activity, and it feels like you're seeing 
handheld war reportage footage. And that's the beauty yes. of it. I think when handheld works well is that, oh no, we're like, it has to be shot this way because we're just trying to keep up with them. And it's not tossed off. It's not like it's he not, didn't plan it. It's meticulously oh, yeah. planned. And also in order to get a to get a real authentic feeling of par- Parisian streets, mm-hmm. they use only wire they use wired microphones or wireless microphones. I, I have use no a idea about mic because he doesn't particularly maybe more in the park, but he doesn't want and it, if you if you watch some of the framing suggest there's no boom mic because they're too far away right you know yeah like yeah. and he worked with small crews and in the he had replaced the sound recordist um on his previous films with a new one for this who really whose name is in the credits i can't remember yeah and now. he's but uh, who really was focused on name. direct sounds mm-hmm. and that's different from hollywood filmmaking by the way in the sense that like sound is so poured over and planned and controlled and, and, and in a sense it makes sense it's industrial filmmaking right yeah. but what romare does is he captures the like the way that life is supposed to feel. Yeah, also, absolutely. So in your wonderful notes, you have a line about how the editing focuses on the listener, which, I, by the way, I think is so cinematic in films when you're, yeah. the person speaking is not who's on screen, but rather the person reacting to that. Yeah, it's um, really amazing when you watch this film and these dialogue conversations where it's always very simple. It's either you're seeing the two shot or it's getting the shot reverse shot. Um, it focuses on the listener. And so you got to ask like what do we get when we look at the listener so like as we're we're looking at it her friend in this um cafe scene and then there's a great example with Lucy later on who we haven't uh, introduced yet a character in the film but let's talk about the friend um you know what do we get in these 20 seconds there's this one part where we stay on the friend for 20 seconds like Liam what did you get seeing that for 20 seconds what did that do well, for you well i feel like what a... that does is you know it's this idea hold on one second yeah Wanted to have the backup. What it does for me, you know, it's this idea that movies, all art, but cinema in particular is, is a way of thinking as opposed mm-hmm. to just a present presentation of images. Like movies do not happen on a screen. They happen in your mind. Your reaction to them yeah. is the storytelling, right? Yeah. Because it's not being yeah, telegraphed or thank you. Well, yeah. Thank you. It's not being telegraphed. You're not being told. I would say that in a lot of other more popular cinema, not to be a hater because I enjoy popular movies too, uh, you're not necessarily being engaged in, in, a, in an intellectual way. So when you are able to watch a person listening to someone else talk and seeing the way they react, and you know, acting in the cinema is generally, let's say, realistic, natural, low-key, mm-hmm. uh, all in the eyes, especially when you're not speaking, you become engaged in their thoughts and you're creating your own thoughts. Mm-hmm. And like that's, it's cinema, baby. Like yeah. the idea that... Yeah. The movie's happening in your mind. There's a screen yeah. projecting an image every second. Every second, that you're in the dark for mm-hmm. 24, 20, you know, 24 frames, and uh, that's the movie experience. And it's I amazing. Think, There's so many levels to it. Yeah, and yeah. I think that that's what's beauty. And I think Romare is a uses like like filmmakers like Hong Sang Soo. And this is not an original thought that I had. This is a Dennis Lim thought. But uh, Romare makes films that are uh, ways of thinking, as opposed to as opposed to just cinematic stories. Yeah. Well, I almost, it's like his films to me are the most sensual films filmed starring the most um, reasonable people. So like the deep senses um, or um, attachment to these like very visceral things like desire, but it's always going to be filtered through these characters that are always going to be two in their own head. Totally. And also unapologetically real people. And I hate yes. saying unapologetically, yeah. but like real, real people, which is a great way to segue But not into... non-actors. 
These are not all non-actors. These are all actors. Most of these are actors, young actors, but mm-hmm. but actors. Yeah. And, and people, by the way, who know how to be on camera. Yeah. That's a huge distinction. Like, there is the fact that he makes documentary-style footage, but he's still a dramatist, and he's yeah. still a filmmaker, and he's still a professional filmmaker, yeah. and he's not making documentaries. Yeah. So we then, we leave this confrontation, and Francois, through a series of coincidences... Well, one, one large coincidence, which is he ends up at a cafe the same as the aviator, whose name is, one more time? Christian. Christian. Sees him at a cafe with his wife, blonde-haired woman, and begins to follow him. Mm-hmm. And in following him, he follows him onto a bus where he sees a woman, and there's a great uh, moment where they make eye contact that feels like a before sunrise. I mean, sorry, before sunrise <laughs> reference. And then they end up in a park, Francois and this young woman, Lucy. Yes. And they keep bumping into each other. And then eventually she has engaged on his and his investigation. And this is, I think, a key idea of the movie. I sent you a screenshot last night that I think is the key moment in the movie, which I rewatched, where she asked him, are you a detective? And he goes, no. Well, yes, sort of. And I think that this movie plays from this moment on, and maybe from the beginning, but from here on in the existentialist uh, drama way, as like, it's not just a search for someone else, it's a search for figuring out who you actually are. I mean, these are young people pretending to be, at times, things they are not. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and I think one of those things these young people are pretending to be, um, including Anne, um, is mature. Um, And then there's, I feel like there's this uh, certain theme of maturity. There's a certain point where Anne's like, Oh, uh, like you should be with someone younger, like Lucy. Um, I'm much too old for you. And you, uh, you and yeah, I are she's 36, 25, but she feels ish. wizened. Yes, she exactly. Like and then she you... feels like she's trying to be older than she is. That's exactly. one thing for sure. Yeah. That's true. Mm-hmm. And I think 25 was different than it is now. 25 is different than, than it is now. Yes, you absolutely. probably were in some ways more mature. And yeah, not to mention Europeans. I think generally have a generally different are. level of maturity. Mm-hmm. But yeah. She's, well, that girl who's always like, I know more about the world than you. And you're yeah. like, okay, <laughs> chill out. You're 25. The, uh, well, with the, uh, the detective story too, it's also the result of this MacGuffin, you know? So he's very, like, I think of Romare as this like Hitchcockian filmmaker and he introduced, and you're talking about him as a dramatist and like how attuned a story is. And essentially what we have here is like this very classic MacGuffin. The, the, the whole plot is spurred on by just like, I need to follow this guy, but it has nothing to do with that. That's always just background, but it allows for these deeper discussions of like, and allows us to see what you described earlier as the meat cute. We yeah, get detect- this amazing and, and, and detective stories to me are almost always much more interesting when they're not about the thing that they're obviously about. Mm-hmm. When they're about yeah. something. I mean, that's right? like, yeah, like the, the Chandler. Right, 100%. 100%. The meat cute. Sean, tell us about the Romarian, Romarian meat cute. How does it work? So how does the how does the Romarian meet cute work? Um, well, it works very organically. Did you ever think you'd be asked that question in your life? I never did, but I think it's... um. um it works in the way that feels authentic to life. And that's the thing about a meet cute is that it always feels like it's a meet cute because it's the convenient way for people to meet. And then it immediately establishes a connection. But in this one, right. this meet cute is the entire 30 minute sequence with this character of Lucy. 40 minute, maybe. 40 minute, 40 minute, 30 to 40 minutes. You know sequence. what this movie replicates really well is the feeling of having like you're at a conference and you meet someone and you become buddies for a day. Yeah. And you're like, and you feel like you've known them forever, but really it's been like six hours. Yeah, but there is like some kind of like just general understanding and chemistry that exists between chemistry uh, is between important, the, right? The people. 
And this actress uh, who plays Lucy is unbelievable. Like, talk about a movie star, my God. Oh, she's incredible. Um, Anne uh, Laurier Murray. Um, and right. she'll have a smaller role in Boyfriends and Girlfriends, which is um, the last film of the Comedies and Proverbs series. For sure. And this is when the movie kind of also becomes, becomes a comedy. There's a yeah. bit in this where uh, Lucy realizes what Francois is up to. And she's like, oh, let's get a picture of them. So she wanders over and meets these two people, one of whom who's from L.A. and another who's from Quebec who speaks limited French. And that is Marie-Stéphane uh, Romare's editor, yeah. or at least on this film, assistant editor. And she tries to stage this moment where this guy who's a photographer, or it's, I don't know if he's a photographer, but he has like a newfangled Polaroid camera. It's a, yeah, it's the new camera. And like, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing to look back to that time where it's like, oh, right. Like, it was a luxury item. Not everybody yeah, would have had cool. access or even maybe because the Mary uh, Stephens character was like, uh, sees Lucy handling the camera and asks her, like, do you know how to use that? I do you mean, know how to, like your fingers over the lens. Right, right like what exactly. a, what a, uh, it's a, such a different time to think about. Totally. And photos are, like, more of a thing, right? Like, yeah. now you could probably take a picture of that couple with your iPhone from, like, 30 feet away, and they wouldn't notice. Yeah. Like, it wouldn't even be a thing. But then, right. you know, the image was, like, a very, very different mm -hmm. thing, um, which is why I don't let people take pictures of me. I just want my aura to remain intact <laughs> entirely. Um, so she tries to get them to take a picture of her uh, in front of a tree, really with the couple, the aviator and his yes. wife behind yeah. her. And the woman, uh, so they're like, why do you want to take a picture in front of a tree? And she goes, because... Because of my tree fetish, which is such a weird thing to just sh suddenly show up in the movie. But it's so, it just says so much about her as a character. Here's someone that's willing to go to this length. One, because she's enjoying this and is finding it all fun and amusing. Um, but you right. just really get so much of like who this person is as a character that would say this. And uh, we'll definitely have to add this sound clip in because it's just her delivery is so good because she delivers it in French. The tourists don't understand. They ask her to repeat herself. And she says tree fetish and it's um the tourist has a very funny reaction to it yeah it's nice you're over here it's funny, it's fun. It's a funny use of language. And it's, you know, I find movies uh, that deal with language and translation in a real way to be like very, very enjoyable yeah. because that's like real life, right? And yeah. I think yeah. what's so good about it is that it, it's, first of all, it's played in a relative wide shot, which I, I think mm -hmm. this is, is the co idea that comedy is always funnier in the wide. Like seeing someone mm -hmm. slapped in the face in a close-up is not funny. Well, yeah, it can be. But seeing- And uh, there's very, very little close-ups in this yeah. movie. And they're almost maybe, all mediums. If there's, if there's anything and, um, resembling he, a close, it's actually usually a medium. Yeah, he finds um, close-ups hard to insert. Um, and because he has so much oh, movement, it's really hard to work with the close-up. And he also feels that close-ups um, subtract. They don't add to anything. They actually take away from everything that you could be getting. And so that's why you will not see um, a lot of close-ups in a Romare film. Yeah. And I think, again, it's all about suggestion. I think his filmmaking is largely mm -hmm. about thought, thought and suggestion. But but also that thought is connected to seeing more, not just seeing a close-up of someone's face. Because a lot of folks sometimes might frame thought in close-up. I love when you say folks, it's a little like Obama is talking. Now, folks are going to say that the close-up <laughs> offers more than the wide shot. But uh, that's not true. 
Well, there's there's a lot of commonly held film beliefs that um, I think Romare really proves are like total bullshit. Give me one, quick. Um, that close-up is the source of emotion. And I think that is one of the most flawed ways of thinking. No shot has any a priori, uh, a priori meaning. And so you could get emotion from any number of shots, and Romare quite shows, like, okay, well, here's... You're going to feel things with this medium. You're going to feel things with this Well, line. I think that uh, another thing that... Um, um, Romare disproves is the idea that like a an, an, a a very edited movie a very cutty movie is is a is a good movie because I think that like he understands something which is like cinema is duration plus mm-hmm. feeling right like the amount of time yeah. you spend in a feeling is is really really important. But he's not like a long take fetishist no, like many like me, other directors. Like me, love a long yeah. take, love a long take. But no, he's not yeah. Bellatar. He's not. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, it's mainly, mainly just to like pr- or any of these folks that really like to well, so much of his philosophy is like um from andre bazan and for andre bazan it was so much about what makes cinema cinema is the unity of space and so i think that's one of the main reasons you won't see too much cutting as well as like this very bazanian idea of space. i have to do this sorry now uh folks are going to tell you that andre bazan uh would... <laughs> <laughs> so we jump forward ahead they spend some time together Lucy and Francois part in a cafe yeah. where they're looking mm-hmm. upon where they think is the apartment of the aviator and his wife, which yes. is later revealed to be something uh, else. And then this is where their relationship also kind of takes a very interesting turn where she starts to needle him and really kind of be honest and say, like, listen, Anne doesn't love you. And not in like a way that's like trying to be mean, but just being very honest. And you see him start to like actually sort of like bark back a little bit. This is the most like sort of emotion that we've gotten out of Francois at this point. I I think I... And that's when Lucy's just like, all right, you know, like she sees that like this isn't necessarily going to go anywhere now, but here's my address if uh, things ever sort of She's very mature. I, you know, there's a point in the film where she says she's 15 and I I struggle with the idea that she's actually 15, you know, to come back to the identity Mm -hmm. thing. I think there's some, I I mean, look, uh, a French 15 is different from an American 15. Like these are all culturally specific milestones. And yeah, like thinking of like their, their time period and just like understanding that this is what, in, what is in some in ways, and Marie, in I'm sorry, Anne and Lucy are interesting inverses of each other. And Marie is always... Yeah. And like personality. Anne, Anne is always, I keep saying Marie, Anne is always trying to be like, I'm so, I'm too old for you. Whereas Lucy feels like she's young by definition and that she's 15, but like seems wise and smart. And like she's mm-hmm. kind of able to see through his bullshit a little more interestingly. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, and then you also see... Um, and going back to the proverb, one cannot think of nothing. Um, in that same cafe scene, you see that he asks her, it's like, oh, well, what about your problems? What are you going through? And she kind of skirts the issue. And we'll soon, uh, we'll find out later on at the end of the film that there is another person in her life. She talks a little bit about him, but in like funny, vague and, but terms. Earlier but earlier in the film. She's distracting herself as well. So jumping ahead, we learn that later, the last time we see Lucy in the film, it's fine, we can spoil this. She's kissing yeah. a, a, a man. We will reveal who we think yeah. that person is uh, later on. But earlier when they meet and they're in the park, she says she doesn't have a boyfriend. She says she does have a boyfriend. She says, this is my mm-hmm. non-existent, my fake boyfriend. Yep. And again, it's all about identity. These people, like they're uh, subconsciously like, I may never see Francois again, so I can play with, my yeah, world. And it's like right. the new sort of like the excitement of meeting someone, which is sort of paired against the drudgery that mm-hmm. he experiences with Anne, who's like his relationship is not <laughs> right. very good with. So 
We cut back to Anne. She leaves work. She's kind of accosted by a guy on the street or uh, getting onto the train. Oh, who's in another amazing actor from Romare films. He's like so intense. Um, really? And his sort of like, in his approach, uh, like like even just in that scene. Yeah, he like, um, he like. She, it's like being accosted by a friend like you haven't seen in a long her. time, but that's like an annoying friend. And I know friend. that, they, again, yeah. French, but like, it's not like, it's like, hey, I'm going to aggressively like put my lips on you. Like, it's a lot to watch. Yep. This sets her off. She goes home. She gets into bed. She wants some time to herself. She calls Carrere, a friend of hers, who she's going to see, and she's like, I'm tired. But he convinces her to come out. Just like, go. Oh, yeah, that, that's earlier, that's earlier. In, uh, at work. So um, you actually get a little, another little thing about Anne's personality is that like, she'll, um, uh, she can't get out of things, which we'll kind of get a little bit lo- more into with her breakdown. But once she starts breaking down, she's just like, you know, like. Everyone's I, telling uh, me what to do. Ooh, I don't get to make everyone's decisions telling about me my life, do. like, and whatever. Yes. And there's this scene that feels Francois shows up kind of being a brute and demanding information. She is like, no, I'm independent. I can do what I want. I can love who I want. I can do all these things. And she sort of has this moment that's sad a little bit where she's like, no, like I'm a, you know, I don't get to make any decisions for myself. Like you won't leave me alone. I can't like just have a night to myself, whatever. But right when you think their relationship's about to end, she's like, Francois, come, don't leave stay like he's literally at the door and she's like come back and then what follows is by the way a a sort of shot from above them tilted down which so far that it's kind of been played out in 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 you know singles but like medium wide medium singles and all of a sudden they're together Mm -hmm. in a frame but i feel as though there's a performance going on here like she thinks this is what she has to do she's to some ways some of the way i felt like maybe she was placating him or the reality is she she does not want to be alone yeah, I, th- I th- see. I don't. I didn't see like the sort of play acting or like the placating. I really thought of just like you know, it's like you things are ending, but also like you don't want the person to go. There is like a certain relationship that exists, and like you know, I'm. Uh, like, but at you know, this point, we don't know that it's ending. I don't know that we know that it's over. We don't know that it's ending, but it feels, it feels like, like it's a... it's over but open because she's like you know maybe I'll I'll come see you Monday. So they had their plans right. So to they, see each but other I still Monday, feel but... like they have plans. However, and and I read an interpretation of this is this is an attempt for him to make her jealous but he brings up lucy he talks about lucy and i think that's when it's over when she's like you don't know what you want and this brings me back to my feeling about francois which is by the end of the film i again i am not like i'm not judging him morally but he kind of drives me nuts because he doesn't know what he wants he doesn't know who he is he only knows that like he has to feel upset or upset about his circumstance and like yeah but i wouldn't say he's like particularly like whiny about it throughout no the film, he's stoic he's a bit of a stoic yeah. but he's still like she's right in the end where she's like you don't know what you want you don't know who you are like you don't know anything about yourself yeah. like what bad thing nothing bad has actually happened to you um mm-hmm. and that really resonated because i mean i think i can speak to myself like I've, i'm definitely like that like i'll be like like if i if i'm stewing in my sadness suddenly i'll go like what am i nothing happened or like I did yeah, this to myself, like and that's the thing. Yeah. He made an assumption because he saw two people together, and he's like playing the role of the boyfriend, and which is another yeah. thing this movie's about. What it's existential, and it's like, what is your identity? Are you the boyfriend? Are you a detective? Right. Are, are you, you the a boyfriend? Lover? Are you the replacement? You know, right. and like it's uh, it sucks to have the realization, and like he's certainly making her jealous and bringing up Lucy. Well, what's so great is he starts talking about Lucy after we get the big twist, um, which we talked a little bit about. Oh yeah, earlier. spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. Spoiler. So this is stop a spoiler listening for if you haven't movie. seen this film from 1981. Skip ahead two minutes, and um, 
she uh, Mar- Anne shows a picture of the aviator. First of all, it's the best picture ever because you see the aviator, Christiane. We see the blonde woman. We see another brunette. And we see another man in the back. And from this one photo, Romare creates this relationship um, between all these people Yeah, there's uh, like a story there. It's like a Hemingway there's short a story, story just in an image. Like, yeah. n- oh, no detail is but, too small. But in this moment, we find out that this blonde that they've been following with is not... His wife. <gasps> His wife is the other person <laughs> in the photo who's a brunette as well. And so now we are led to believe that this blonde is also, is yet another one of his mistresses. But um, it is his uh, sister. No. No, no, it's, no. Uh, Francois just thinks it's his sister. That's what Francois, when he writes uh, Lucy. See, so, I thought it was the mistress, but I thought it was initially, but then his, his note makes me think it's the sister. Did I misinterpret that? Well, I think it's just like we never know, right? Like, so we, it's just like, oh, clearly this isn't, but he's, Fair. you know, it's There's these ambiguity. things that we tell ourselves. And he's just like, oh, yeah, well, that's his sister, obviously. Cause he, again, a resonance yeah. around identity. Who, mm-hmm. like, we don't know who this person and is. Not, and wanting to see the sort of truth that you want to see with the person that you want to see it with. Which is very cinematic, by the way, because it's all about yeah. the objective, the, yeah. the eye, the way. But we done in, in a very sort of like understated way. So he, they break up. A kind of yeah. officially, but unofficially, she's like. I I, I think essentially it's up. like it's it's open, but they're broken. And that out. final shot there is her standing in the doorway. We can't see him, and her arms against the wall, and we see the backside of her. And she's like, Francois, maybe you'll introduce me to friend. She also gets dressed, and she looks like she just has, puts this like style and outfit on, and it's like a really smart move to have her like get get out of her work clothes and get into something that's like cool, hip, pretty lady going yeah. on the town thing. Because you're like, right, you and fuck up, Fran- you fuck up. <laughs> Come on, man, get it together. But the, oh, then I'm Francois so says something to her too. It's like, is that what you're? Is that what you're wearing out? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And that, by and, the way, that uh, part of the thing is almost played in like a, it follows her around for a while, like mm-hmm. the camera, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, like we're just the cameras. Not with her. long takes in the sequence, but unbroken takes. And I think that's an important distinguishment mm-hmm. between Romare and and the long take fetishists is that he prefers an oh, unbroken yeah. take, like a take that yeah. that plays till its natural conclusion, as opposed to like a, for sure. a and then Bellatar cutting to whatever that a, next take right. is. Yeah, he mm-hmm. likes. It's not the exercise of the long take at all. And he compares his work and, and other do to theater. And there is a theatrical theatrical quality, I should mm-hmm. say, not to the yeah. filmmaking, but to the decision to like, let's let a shot play for almost like we're looking at a proscenium arch. Let, not in the t- way that we view it, but in the way that it makes us feel. Let's stay with this for as long as is necessary. Like, let's not cut more than we have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's not overly cutting. There's never any extraneous angle. Every angle is to show us something Francois new. Francois. To give us something new. Leaves. Goes and writes a note to Lucy, brings it to her house. She's outside with a boy, and they are kissing. And she walks away and she giggles. And this she comes boy back. is. And wait, wait. He watches. The boy leaves. As the boy leaves, what happens? Should I do it? Should I do we it? do it. So the whistling theme emerges again we've heard it up to this point three times before he does it with lucy in the cafe he does it one more time on his own i believe when he's in the room and then we hear it at the beginning and now we're hearing that whistling and it is not from francois it's from his friend that he meets in the second scene of the movie and this friend of his is lucy's boyfriend so the coincidences in this world of just like all the different relationships and misconnections are just like he meets continuing when he's to come like, to a head. When he's leaving the post office, right? This is the friend that who's got the brother that's the plumber. Right. 
um, that's helping uh, Anne's plumbing. And so this is the friend he meets in the bathroom, and this is the friend that he sees again at the train this station. This is why I push, push again, uh, up against the idea of, of uh, spoilers, especially for movies like this, because this is not like a yeah. spoiler. It's not like, oh my God, it's Thanos. <laughs> That'd be weird if Thanos showed up in a Romero movie. But it's more but, you know, like an existential spoiler like the it's an existential spoiler but you know i mean that's uh, that's what makes these spo- like it feels more, so actually, impactful like, it makes it more of a spoiler in the movie theater the, i mean what a great collective experience at that moment you heard gasps in the movie oh, that's theater. The like best. this is like hitchcock level shit of like this moment of just the reveal of a photograph makes us because we've been so thoroughly involved in this story from the very beginning and we only know what these different characters know so there's just so many levels of engagement that Romare is playing with with his audience of what we know what the characters know what we know that they know and it's all coming together in this um, in this scene and, the, and it's like truly just the work of a master and the film ends with a beautiful song that Romare composed about um, living in Paris and feeling dejected and feeling alone and all these things. And we'll, 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 we'll play it at the end of the episode. I hope that Romare's lawyers don't come for us. Um, I, um, I, when we post this uh, online, I'd love to make a graphic of the, the lyrics for this poem because there, it was written by Romare. Um, himself and like the words are really beautiful and I think it's worth um you know it's a nice song to hear because it's a very old school French song and he believed in that sort of old school Parisian musical tradition but the lyrics of it are so just about um loneliness and solitude in the city um and that being part of the charm of the city you know Paris has charmed me Paris has disarmed me and so these lyrics are actually really nice and these are all composed by Romare with the the piano playing as you said earlier from his assistant editor this movie's great I think we should conclude very briefly by saying that this film is Romare insisted that this film only be released in two theaters Paris was starting to experience the multiplification of movies, like making movies as profitable mm-hmm. as quickly as they could. And his attitude was like, no, leave the movie in the movie theater for six months. Like, you know, 150,000, you know, day, uh, viewers over six months is actually much more of a sign of success than 150,000 people in two days. Like, let's, let's yeah. let these things play out and be real. Um, yeah. And he, he understood that, like, you know, a personal film is different from like a, a movie that's going to attract people right away. Um, like, and yeah, so the eventizing of cinema was something. With he the eventizing. And, and that happens in art house as well. And he's aware of that, too. And um, in an interview with him in this great book that I've been reading called Eric Romare Interviews, he talks about the auteur star system, which is just as bad, he says. This is his quote. We'll encounter the auteur star system, which is just as bad. And we see that playing out now, you know, like auteurs becoming like the events you know like olivier assayas and noah bomback they're the event filmmakers well, of our i think uh the, the auteur the, star system the actual key one and by the way this is not a criticism at all because i love him is martin scorsese martin scorsese uh, for can't sure make a 20 million dollar uh movie anymore he has to make a 200 200 million dollar movie that plays on a uh streamer and like whatever yeah. and then His that's the brand still, the brand is that still it's a, good it's a scorsese but from the point, like, sort of his re, like his sort of explosion again with The Departed, he goes on and he has to make increasingly large movies. With the exception of Silence, which actually only cost twenty million, but with lawsuits ended up being fifty million dollars. So huh. it's it's yeah. wild. Um, yeah. Listen, this is we're just scratching the surface of what we're going to talk about here. There's a lot to this podcast. Yep. Next up, Sean, what are we talking about next? 
So next week, um, we're going to be looking at The Four Adventures of Renette and uh, Mirabelle. Uh, this is another 16mm uh, feature of Romare, which uh, The Aviator's Wife was as well. Um, I'd love to get into this next week, you know, the difference in these, uh, these formats. But um, we'll be using this as just another entry point into looking at this movie and talking about Romare. Um, all of these movies that we'll be talking about... Um, uh, in these early episodes are available at Metrograph at home. And if you're in New York City, you could catch them um, at the So Metrograph hopefully this Theater. episode will be up in time. Um, well, that's, a, that's a big hope. But uh, if you're in New York City, the weekend of, this is really going to date this episode, but whatever, the, week, uh, the weekend of Friday, August 12th through the 14th. And I think playing into the next week, The Adventures of Renette and Mirabelle will be able to, you can watch it in the theater. But also it's available, as I'm watching it, on Metrograph at home until September 29th. So you've got plenty of time to see it if you can't make it in the movie theater. Uh, find us on the internet. Sean and I are both on Twitter. I'm, what am I? What is my Twitter handle? It's, uh, it's Liam G. Billingham. Before Sean Rice. <laughs> yeah, it's Liam G. Billingham on Twitter and Instagram. My Instagram is private, but you can still find me there. Uh, Sean is at... Oh, I, I didn't know your Instagram yeah, was private. Yeah, I have private. a kid. I, I'm the, the fucking guy that yeah. posts photos of his child. Um, Sean is at the Brown Sean on both. Yeah, Instagram so the Brown Sean S H A U N. That's my Reach handle. Out, and um, this is coming on up Instagram. on the Uber Busters theme at the feed. This is coming out on the Uber Busters feed, which is at Uber Busters. I have to give a, We have to give a special thanks to our buddy George Fragopoulos, who was one of the original mm -hmm. co-hosts with myself of Uber Busters for letting us put this on the feed and kind of making it a series because we thought the listeners of that show. Awesome, thank you, George. Thank you, George. Yeah. Would would like this show? Just and another we're gonna have him on. We should have him on for a upcoming episode. Absolutely. I know he'd love to. I'd love to bring on like other folks as well. Like I think it'd be interesting like to be in conversation with the people that we are um, watching these movies with the people that are, um, you know, friends of ours that are like, you know, also seeing these things or just have interesting perspectives. Right. So I'd love to be incorporating lots of, um, um, lots of people on the show. And our boy Romare is, is not going away anytime soon. And this is going to be, you know, like we said before, we're going to, when we, when we, when we find something to talk about, we're going to talk about it. Um, yeah. thanks so much. This has been Romare cast. Um, Liam Billingham. And I'm Sean Sandra Adieu, adieu, adieu. Harry has charmed me. Harry has disarmed me. I can't hit it there. Damn it. Thanks, everybody. Okay.
démarche du métro. 